Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Fanny Crosby's Memories of 80 Years by Fanny Crosby, and there is no copyright on it. And we are in Chapter 12. Now and then, during the early 40s, I contributed poems to the Saturday Evening Post and the Clinton Signal, for which paper Mr. J. F. Chamberlain and Mr. F. J. Warner also wrote. And the compositor was continually confusing the initials of our names, so that it was sometimes difficult for our friends to tell just which of us wrote a certain piece. Mr. William Y. Smith wrote for the Saturday Emporium under the name Rusticus, and I answered him using my own name. He afterwards became an Episcopalian clergyman and the translator of the Bible into the old Scotch language, and he's still living in St. Catharines, Ontario. I also wrote occasionally for the Fireman's Journal, a weekly supported by the volunteer companies of New York in which I took ardent interest. Most of my poems in those years were imaginative and sentimental, and one of them, which I now happen to remember, begins like this. Let me die on the prairie and over my rude grave, mid the soft winds of summer, the tall grass shall wave. I would breathe my last sigh when the bright hues of even are fading away in the blue arch of the heaven. During those years, we received visits from a large number of literary men and women, among them Thurlow Weed and Mr. Sigourney and Bayard Taylor. One bright morning in April, when the violets were opening their tiny buds to the warm sunshine of early spring, the mayor, common council, and a part of the legislature came to make their annual call. With them also came Martin F. Tupper, the English poet, who at that time was a very popular author of proverbial philosophy and the verse. He was asked to make an address, but not being an adept in extemporary speaking, he told me that he would rather recite one of his poems, and he chose one entitled, Never Give Up. The first stanza of which runs as follows, Never give up, it is wiser and better, always to hope than once to despair. Throw off the yoke with his conquering fetter, Yield not a moment to sorrow or care. Never give up, though adversity presses. Providence wisely has mingled the cup. And the best counsel in all our distresses is the stout watchword, never give up. But when Mr. Tupper reached the third line of his poem, he broke down. And as I happened to be familiar with it and was sitting directly behind him, I prompted him. Then he began again and this time reached the third line of the second stanza. When his memory failed a second time, I repeated the line, but evidently not wishing to continue, in spite of his title, Never Give Up, he turned to the audience and said, It is of no use. This lady knows my poem better than I do, and therefore I will sit down. William Cullen Bryant is coming to our musical was the watchword that passed through the institution one day in 1843, and teachers as well as pupils could hardly restrain their impatience until the hour of the evening entertainment. We knew Mr. Bryant by reputation as the able editor of the Evening Post for almost 20 years, and we had been delighted by the stories of travel in foreign lands which he occasionally wrote. For about 25 years he had been recognized by all classes as the foremost living American poet, and he was frequently called the first citizen of the Republic. Thinotopus was a household classic and is said to be the sweetest apology for death that our literature affords. And the very hand of death had been stayed 
and the gray-haired patriot spared to enjoy the platus of his countrymen. But the mind of a man of the caliber of Bryant is never turned aside, either by the world's censure or its praise. Whenever he went to impromptu receptions were held in his honor, and we had the privilege of meeting him after our musical, but I had a small hope of being received otherwise than in the conventional manner by so great a poet. To my astonishment, however, Mr. Bryant warmly grasped my hand and said a few words in commendation of my verses, urging me to press bravely on my work as a teacher and writer. By those few words he did inestimable good to a young girl, who had not dared even fancy that she would be able to touch the robe of such a great poet genius. From the pleasant recollections of Bryant, I turned to a far different, though also a very kindly man, Horace Greeley. In some respects, he was the most remarkable person I have known, because of his personal eccentricities and because of his natural brilliance. Yet he was not always at his best as a conversationalist, and I am free to say that my introduction to him was by no means under favorable circumstances. I was invited to a New Year's Eve party, 1844, at which many notable guests were to be present, but expectations centered around Mr. Greeley. And when he was announced, I believe that I actually held my breath. So great was my eagerness. But instead of the brilliant and genial editor, I found him a cool, laconic, and very soon he bid us good evening. When I informed our hostess, who was a good friend of mine, that I was rather disappointed in Mr. Greeley, she laughed, and the incident passed. But within five months, I was given a delightful chance to change my opinion of the great editor and founder of the New York Tribune. We again met in the same drawing room as before, and many of the guests were the same. But Mr. Greeley was completely transformed. At least he seemed so to me. For the entire evening, he was a center of the attentive company, and everyone in his opinion on a great variety of subjects. His answers were direct and simple, with no parade of wisdom, no consciousness of his part of intellectual superior, and music and art and politics, in fact nearly every department of human knowledge or of human endeavor, seemed to interest him and to share his own wit. The second meeting with Horace Greeley taught me the first impressions, although they sometimes most lasting, yet often are most unjust. This was my thought as I returned homeward after enjoying the sparkle of Horace Greeley's wit, and I was willing to crown his brow with a fadeless laurels. We also had the privilege of listening to some of the world's greatest singers. Jenny Lynn came to our school, taking us by surprise, and for three quarters of an hour she charmed us with such music as I never heard before or since. Nor do I hope to listen to such melodies again until I hear the choirs of the Eternal City. The year before that, in 1843, one of our greatest New York newspapers had offered a prize for the best poem on any subject that one chose to select. Some of my indulgent friends persuaded me to enter the competition, and I chose to write a tribute to Jenny Lind. My friend Bayard Taylor won the prize, but I believe I won as great an honor, and I know an honor more pleasing to me in being permitted to deliver my poem in the presence of Jenny Lind herself. For when she came to visit us, I welcomed the sweetest nightingale in the following stanzas. We ask no more why strains like thine enchant a listening throng, for we have felt in one sweet hour the magic of thy song. How like the carol of a bird it stole upon my ear, 
Then tenderly it died away in echoes soft and clear. But hark again its music breaks, harmonious on the soul, how thrills the heart at every tone with bliss beyond control. If strains like these so pure and sweet to mortal lips be given, but must the glorious anthems be which angels wake in heaven? Tis past, tis gone, the fairy dream of happiness is o'er, and we the music of thy voice perhaps may hear no more. Yet Sweden's daughter thou shalt live in every grateful heart, and may the choicest gift of heaven be thine where'er thou art. Among the singers who came a number of times were Adeline Patty and Clara Louise Kellogg's and Madame Lagrange, where she was in America on a special tour, which also a notable event. Madame Lagrange was asked to sing in the chorus of Stabat Mater. It is in the midst of one of the solos she burst into tears because of her sympathy for her pupils and what she took to be a great affliction. But with a noble effort, she suppressed her emotion, lest she might injure the feelings of those who were sensitive, and thereby won a hearty admiration. In the midst of these pleasant surroundings, my muse occasionally plumbed herself for a flight. The blind girl and other poems had been so cordially received by the public that my friends urged me to publish another book. But in view of the fact that my health was five or six years had been somewhat impaired, such a task seemed out of the question. A number of public occasions, however, had called for special efforts on my part, with the result that another volume of poems was collected and published in 1851. The first piece, which gave the title to the book, was called Monterey, and it was a long-spun poem, the chief merit of which is a few sincere words of dedication to three of my friends, Dr. Murray, Dr. Clements, and Mr. Chamberlain. Now as I realize that these three dear men have passed beyond the sound of human voices, the remembrance of their many kind acts is sweetened and deepened as I recall my early tributes to them, and these flowers of memory are still fadeless and fragrant. That's the end of chapter 12, and chapter 13 is next time, and it is a lesson in self-reliance. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.